Antennas, a Truth Out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. Today, we are going to talk about the legacy of Occupy, a much maligned social movement that holds some pretty urgent lessons for the moment we're living in. It takes years, if not decades, to truly read the impacts of mass movements. Last summer's protests, for example, clearly led to the conviction of George Floyd's killer. But that judicial outcome was just one short-term impact of the largest mass protest movement in U.S. history. With so much activation and so much energy channeled into existing organizing work, including abolitionist organizing, we don't know yet what the cascading impacts of those protests might be, because the larger context of those events is still under construction. Friday, September 17th, will mark the 10-year anniversary of the Occupy movement, a movement that has caught a lot of flack over the years, sometimes quite deservedly. But for all its faults, Occupy had a profound impact on the character and intensity of protest in the United States. It also activated a new generation of organizers and shifted the Overton window to the left in ways that are rarely discussed or appreciated. So in order to explore the lessons and legacies of Occupy Wall Street amid what's bound to be a barrage of unbearable think pieces, I am joined today (laughs) by labor journalist Sarah Jaffe, author of the books Work Won't Love You Back and Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Sarah Jaffe, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm trying really hard not to write an unbearable think piece about Occupy. I'm doing this instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm doing this in another podcast. Or we're going to do a belabored episode on it. Um, so that I think is going to be, yeah. I'm going to try not to write anything pieces, guys. Going to try. <laughs> How are you doing, friend? I am okay. You know, it is, um, we were saying before we turned the recorder on that we are talking as a hurricane has just hit New Orleans 16 years to the day after Hurricane Katrina, and we don't really know what the impact of that is going to be. And I'm, you know, the world is on fire in a variety of ways. And so, uh, yeah, it's always a question of like, how am I? How am I? Can I sort through any of these things to even like have a coherent self? I don't know. Absolutely. And, um, (laughs) I personally, I've been on sabbatical uh, for the past couple months and, you know, that was long overdue and I am grateful I was able to get out into the woods and visit my reservation and do some work on a book that I'm excited about. So I'm incredibly grateful for all of that, but the balance shifts moment to moment. (laughs) It really, really does. And I am so grateful to have you here with me today because I can't think of anyone I would rather have this discussion with about Occupy. Oh, thank you. So hopping into the Wayback Machine for a moment. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about 2011 because oh, there are yes. some important similarities, I think, between that time and the moment we're currently living in yeah. and also some really important differences. Mm-hmm. One yeah. thing that comes to mind for me that definitely resonates today is the old chant banks got bailed out we got sold out because once again we are faced with a major crisis and funds are unlimited when corporations and banks need an infusion while the rest of us are completely disposable so 
Can you say a bit about what was happening in 2011 in terms of the political climate here and internationally? Yeah, I was thinking about this this morning because, of course, I was also thinking about the eviction moratorium being overturned by those ghouls in the Supreme Court. And the last time that we were in a cascading crisis of homelessness, home loss, all of that was, yeah, in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, didn't really stop. It just slowed down after the financial crisis, right? And like we had very little conversation about what was actually happening to people for the first year and so on. The sort of Democrats, you know, Obama comes into office, passes one sort of stimulus bill and stimulus with big air quotes around it, and then gets on to healthcare reform while the reality of, of people's lives was just getting worse. And so by 2011, you've had like several attempts to sort of start a movement against the banks, against organized capital. Um, you had things like the, you know, the showdown on Wall Street, on Main Street that was led by groups like People's Action. And you had organizing that like the labor movement had tried to start, but none of it had really taken off. And the thing that had taken off was the Tea Party, about which I'm sure more later. And then all of a sudden, some, you know, those those weird hippie kids decide to occupy what ends up being a park in Lower Manhattan. And at first, nobody paid attention to that either, right? Uh, my boss at the progressive publication I was working for that will go unnamed was just like, why are you writing about that? Go do something real. And then, you know, then they got pepper sprayed by an overzealous NYPD officer and the rest is history. On that piece about the police violence, um, I think it's probably pretty hard for most people to imagine now who weren't sort of into Twitter and whatnot at that time, maybe some of the younger folk, a world in which like we weren't inundated with that kind of imagery of protesters being mm -hmm. attacked and of that kind of violence. Um, yeah. And it was an interesting moment in that the outrage was absolutely justified and mm -hmm. people were, you know, moved to get into the streets in very real ways by what they were seeing. And there was also this air about it of, this is unprecedented. This is unthinkable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and right, right, I, right. I really appreciated Miriam Kaba for responding to that in as an educator. <laughs> right. And instead of just saying, like, you ignorant, terrible people who don't recognize what has been happening to Black people for generations. Right. Instead, right. it's like, okay, here's a zine. Here's some history. And I think that that was a very important like beginning for mm -hmm. a lot of folks who were involved in Occupy. I certainly saw um, that sort of education process taking hold with some people who'd showed up with this very pro-cop attitude. And in Chicago, mm -hmm. even going so far as to write sort of a love letter to the cops early on for yeah. not having beaten us up, which was yeah, incredibly- Yeah, chanting, cops are the 99%, right? It, and it like that took interesting forms, right? Yeah, because like one of the first people that when Occupy moved into um, home defense work in Atlanta, one of the first people whose homes they tried to save was a cop. And that was a really interesting um, moment for them to, you know, and, and potentially for, hopefully for him too, um, hopefully change his life. But like, 
you know, there was this tension where people couldn't figure out because their class analysis wasn't particularly strong in a lot of cases. And there are like reasons for that, like, you know, a hundred years of American history of beating, expelling, arresting, and executing communists um, and anarchists. We shouldn't forget that. Um, and the, the way that the conversation, you know, it started out very populist, very basic. We are the 99%, right? And there's like, there's absolutely a ton of use to that moment because in America, you know, the conversation is always about like the middle class and the, the poor and the whatever. And like to actually sort of claim a broad identity that there was no one below I think was really important, right? Like that was the usefulness of the, we are the 99% chant. It sort of named who we were against. And also it didn't cut somebody off and be like, we need to defend the American worker. Or we need to defend the, you know, factory jobs, or we need to defend the middle class. It was like, we're everyone except for those people at the top who, you know, by now they're, they're shooting themselves into space and in, in really phallic rockets, but like, <laughs> At the time, they were just, you know, collecting blank checks from, I mean, they're still collecting blank checks from the government, let's be real, but they were collecting blank bailout checks from the government while, you know, destroying people's lives. And it seemed like both political parties had decided not to care anymore. Um, and it really, it changed the conversation. I remember um, my friend Mike Consul was like heading down to DC to be on a panel about like Dodd-Frank, you know, keeping like the very modest financial reform that we got after the financial crisis. And this was planned since well before Occupy started and then like three weeks into Occupy. I was like, I think you should just walk into the room, laugh and kick over the table. Just be like, yeah, the conversation's changed now. We're not debating whether we should keep Dodd-Frank anymore. We're debating whether we should nationalize the banks and destroy them. Um, which we should still be doing, by the way. We should not debating it, just doing it. We should absolutely be doing that. <laughs> and right. not debating it, just doing it. Just doing it. But absolutely. And I feel like that experience of of radicalization that unfolded for a lot of people around policing who started out yeah. in that sort of typical pro-cop and even thanking the cops for not beating us kind of mentality. Um, mm. You know, folks did eventually get beaten and have those experiences yeah. that come with being persistent about social issues and questioning the mm. order of things. And so we did see a lot of minds change. And I think that was important for a lot of folks who wound up going into local organizing here in Chicago, that we had folks who were going in with a little experience and with that yeah. understanding. And that those were those folks were among the people, you know, showing up early in support of Black Lives Matter so that mm -hmm. you had at least more white people and non-black people in the mix who weren't completely clueless about why you don't thank the cops at protests and things of right. that nature. Right. And I think that Thanks to Black Lives Matter and the experience that people have had of, you know, stumbling through learning what solidarity means in mm. relationship to that movement. I do think we're in a much better position today, you know, yeah. for, for mass struggle in some ways than we yeah. were then worse in others. But mm -hmm. yeah. In thinking about where we were back in the preoccupied days and where we are now, I remembered something from your book, Necessary Trouble, mm. when Alexis Goldstein, who worked in the financial industry back mm -hmm. then, yeah. said she kind of marveled out loud at work at the destruction the industry had caused and said, how will the public ever forgive us? And her boss responded, the public is going to forget and then everything is going to go back to normal. The yeah. public 
forgot after the long-term capital management hedge fund imploded and the banks bailed them out. They forgot after the savings and loan crisis. It's going to be a, it's going to be a little rocky for a while, but don't worry about it. Everything will go back to normal. Yeah. I was thinking back on that and about how about how right now rather than collectively reckoning with our losses or challenging the system, we're being rushed back to normal. Mm-hmm. A yeah. normalization process that's really been helped along by the fact that while normal was pretty terrible, a lot of people are desperate for it after the last yeah. year and a half. Yeah, I think right now we're in such an interesting place because like normal is both more desirable and less possible. Yes. And what I mean by that is, of course, like the pandemic ain't over, right? I'm we're we're talking. You're in Chicago. I'm in London. Both of which are places that like have vaccinated a large part of their population, and we we still got the Delta variant, guys. It ain't over. And as long as we have not vaccinated the entire world, a small problem. Um, we're going to keep having variants that evade the vaccine in various ways. So you know, like normal's not possible. Also, the climate crisis is just worse than it was because thank you for however many years of the Obama administration um, continuing to drill baby drill. Um, We have less time to worry about that. So like normal's not possible, but also, you know, I, I understand why I miss normal, right? Gosh, I miss being able to go out with friends without worrying about whether you know, the person next to me who just coughed has COVID, worrying like how effective the vaccine is, worrying about, you know, my mother who refuses to get vaccinated, like all of this stuff. I would love for that all to go away. We'd love it, right? But it's not gonna. And the truth is that it wasn't gonna go back to normal after 2008 either. Like that was a systemic crisis in a bunch of ways um, for, for capitalism, but also for sort of the way people feel about representative democracy. And I think we've seen that. I'm currently reading um, the book, The Great Recoil by Paolo Gerbauta, who is a, a comrade of mine here in London. And it the book is about sort of the end of neoliberalism and the change in politics that's going on right now. And one of the big issues that we saw becoming prominent early during Occupy was people just didn't believe that their representatives would do anything for them and how widespread that belief actually was. And so, you know, we get into the much maligned general assembly and consensus process and all of that stuff. But like in the beginning, it was real that people had like a deep need to feel part of something that actually took their opinion seriously and actually took their participation seriously and wasn't just like, yeah, 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 you vote every four years and then they do exactly the same thing as the last guy did. Yes. And now we're in this particular moment where more and more people are sort of being forced to walk the plank and experience Mm -hmm. abject poverty, displacement, and social disposal in order to restore the dynamics of normalcy under capitalism, Right, where you get evicted if you can't pay your rent, and you go hungry if you can't find work, and you get arrested for the everyday functions of life if you live outside. So this Mm -hmm. is a risky moment for the government that Mm -hmm. I feel like could either blow up quickly or boil over within the next few years. Because even though we never got adequate financial relief in this country, we did see a level of accommodation of people's needs and survival that the public now knows is possible. 
which opens up questions for people about Mm -hmm. where money goes and why there's always another billion for the cops or a few trillion for a war or for the banks and corporations. And yet we are crowdfunding our healthcare, going hungry and getting criminalized for homelessness. And I think our government must be worried because capitalism is a lot more fragile than they would like people to believe. I mean, just over a decade ago, people thought it might've imploded. Yeah. 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 I mean, the economist, right. The economist, which is like the best defender capitalism's ever had ran a cover that cover story that was capitalism at bay. Right. I will never forget that one. Um, and I think the thing that happens right in, in moments of mass crisis like that, um, after 2008, after COVID is that like, it's easy to blame yourself when you're the only person, you know, who's in crisis, right. It's really easy to buy into the thing that tells you that it's your fault. It's your fault that your job is lousy and doesn't pay you well. It's your fault because you're not that good at it. Um, It's your fault that you're losing your home because you took out a mortgage you couldn't afford. It's your fault that you have too much student debt to pay your rent. Um, All of these are your fault, they're personal, right? And the thing that happens in moments of crisis is it becomes so prevalent that you, you can't feel alone anymore because it's everywhere, right? And you can't blame yourself. Like. It's, you, we couldn't blame ourselves for COVID. It wasn't our fault, right? There was no way to tell you know, the, the thousands of people who got COVID in New York in those early days that it was their fault somehow. And so when it's not our fault and we can't be told it's our fault and millions of people know that it's not our fault, the government has to do something about that to tamp down unrest, right? I mean, this is what Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward write about the way that like the government distributes aid in order to essentially avoid unrest. And it's not an accident that, you know, the biggest protest and most, you know, disruptive protest, the, mo- the most cop cars on fire I remember in American history um, happened last year during this giant crisis that, again, they couldn't tell us it was our fault. Absolutely. You mentioned belonging. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really important aspect of the movement, particularly in relation to to what you're discussing here about um, blame and sort of the ways that it gets shifted around and the Mm -hmm. ways that we realize that we're not alone. Can you say a bit about how Occupy gave people a sense of belonging and and what was your experience of the movement like? Yeah, so I was in New York, which is where it got started. And I think, you know, I remember going, and I was as skeptical as anyone else. I mean, partly because some of the people who were like sending around the Occupy invites on Facebook were people that I had seen try to organize something before and they couldn't organize their way out of a paper bag. Um, So I was skeptical and I went down to this thing. And I remember the first thing that I saw was a sign for childcare and there were no children being cared for at that moment. But it was like, I was like, huh, the people who are doing this are thinking about who they want to make space for. And they want to make space for people who have kids. And that's like often something that like kind of, I don't want to say macho, but kind of macho, like protest movements that are disruptive. Like they don't think about that. Um, And that was one of those moments that I was like, huh, okay. Um, The fact that like the food and comfort stations go up early on, right? That there are people making sure that people who come to the park are fed. They have blankets if they're cold, there are coats, there are things that you need that all of that is, you know, it, it's, it's caring for people's basic needs in a way that like late capitalist society is determined not to do. And that, 
you know, again, I, I think when you give people the things that they need and they realize that like, oh, the world could be a place where people just get what they need and it's not denied us because we aren't like, you know, sufficiently productive. That's a really big feeling. And then, you know, those early general assemblies before we got really annoyed at the, uh, you know, the people's mic and all of that, it was kind of amazing to just sort of be in a space where people are figuring out how to talk in a big group and to make decisions in a big group and to like speak with each other and listen to each other and amplify each other's voices. Um, that, you know, I think there's just, there've been so many pieces that I'm actually quite tired of them, um, about, Oh, this is the problem with horizontalism. And this is the problem with consensus process. And this is the problem of blah, 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 blah. And everybody who doesn't care one tiny bit about feminism quotes Joe Freeman on the tyranny of structurelessness as if they cared at all. Um, and I am completely over it. But like, I often think we have to take these moments and these experiments seriously, not because they represent how we should live our lives every day, because good God, I don't want to go back to a massive consensus process meeting to like, you know, figure out basically anything, but what it represents in that moment that people needed and what people needed was to feel like they mattered and that they were a part of something. And that was what it could be. And you could go down there and you could just say like, is there a group working on this thing? Whoa, no. Well, I want there to be one. Is there a library? No, nope, we're going to start one. Great. Um, that's how sort of all of these things took off. And it, you know, at its best, it was a place where like people's ideas and contributions could be valued and brought into the whole in a way that we don't have that experience very often in most of our lives. Absolutely. I, I personally, um, was sort of avoiding Occupy at first. <laughs> I, uh, I was really busy at the time with, um, sort of some art projects I was working on. And I remember a friend of mine kept telling me like, you should go down there. You really, you should check it out. It's really something. Yeah. And I, you know, kept saying, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then I was on Twitter one day and I saw that the bankers in the financial district um, above Jackson and LaSalle, where Occupy was maintaining its presence here, had thrown McDonald's job applications out the windows mm -hmm. at the demonstrators and had held yeah. up signage that said, we are the 1%. Yeah. And that pissed me off so much that I blew off the rest of my day and got on the train and headed down there to join these folks. And what I encountered there, uh, was I like strolled up on that corner mm -hmm. was a bunch of people sitting in circles talking about politics. Right. And there, the vast, you know, sort of distinctions and perspective, you know, were, were yeah. impressive. Right. And in a society that is really lacking in fellowship and lacking in places mm -hmm. for people to sort of make these kinds of connections and have these kind of conversations. And as we experienced yeah. during the pandemic, our social interactions mm -hmm. have been so boiled down to consumer activities. Yeah. That alone, just having that space where ideas were percolating mm -hmm. and people were hearing each other. And, yeah. you know, as much as we, again, like you said, we all got sick of the people's mic, but there was something <laughs> really profound about everyday people saying something and then hearing this crowd of people say it back to them, you know, truly yeah. being heard. And 
that did not exist. And the yeah. level of indignation that manifested itself in that environment wasn't something that we had access to as politically frustrated people, because the right. majority of the NGOs and the politically active groups in that time, it, it was not a confrontational time in protest. It was yeah. not a time when people were, were getting in other people's faces and, right. you know, shutting things down and making well, the tea party scenes. was. Yeah, that's but. true. <laughs> so the wrong people were doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And I honestly, were, you know, I think the tea party gave us something valuable with that, which is it reminded people that you could do that you know you could go yell at your congressman it actually <laughs> might be fun you know um it really it it yeah we had been in such a nice period of time and like when we had marches they were just big because like you know we had big marches in the 2000s high you know a million and some odd people marched against the iraq war um people marched against afghanistan too although nobody wants to remember that now um you know like there was there was stuff going on but it was very choreographed it was very stage managed it was very like this is how you do a thing and we go from point a to point b and all of the disruption that had been you know fairly important to the movements of like the 80s and early 90s I'm thinking of like act up here um that was really kind of gone and especially once Obama comes in you know everybody to the sort of left of of Hillary Clinton is just like well now we have to behave we have to ask nicely and the Democrats will give us the thing that we've asked for if we ask really nicely and that of course turned out not to be true and yeah and and like people's actual lives or you know I I remember like I was talking to a lot of people then who are like getting foreclosed on and whose jobs had disappeared and whose you know the the job that they had that paid them enough to live on was gone and the new job that was available was like the you know the night janitor down the street that paid them minimum wage and they couldn't pay for their you know rent and their kids food anymore um there was so much of that still going on and not being discussed and so to, to finally like have places where people were just like acknowledging the reality of the world right um it made you not feel like nuts anymore absolutely and i feel like in those spaces political pots were being stirred right ideas yeah. were being sort of seeded among people and we were provoking each other and you know getting active and being willing to become disruptive and sort of bringing that to the table. Uh, so we had, you know, sort of this, this raw political will, and we had a lot of popular support and we also didn't have demands. <laughs> which <laughs> A lot was made of Occupy's refusal to make demands. Right. Some people defended it as making a lot of sense. <laughs> a yeah. lot of people didn't. Uh, in, in reality, we didn't have the ideological cohesion to make demands, right? Because we had Democrats and anarchists and socialists and a lot of people who were previously unpoliticized. So some people wanted to jail the bankers or end the Fed, and some people wanted to mm -hmm. overthrow the government. So there really right. wasn't enough ideological glue for something like a list of demands but what and it wasn't like they were gonna get met anyway like let's be real <laughs> right? if occupy had come up with 10 demands that were like end foreclosures and send jamie diamond to jail and you know whatever like they wouldn't have been met anyway so that... why bother <laughs> well, you know you... like the importance of the thing 
was the space itself. And this is going to sound contradictory because I was talking about climate change in the very short timeline that we have earlier. But this weekend I was talking with a, a comrade and it was just like, yeah, sometimes we need the, the in-between space. And that's actually the thing that comes before really massive change. And sometimes we have to sit in the discomfort of like, we don't know what to do. We don't have the idea. And, you know, like everybody has been to, or if you haven't, you're lucky, been to the sort of lefty conference where somebody gets up and starts telling you that if you just do what Lenin did in, in 1917, then we'll have a revolution and everything will be magical. And if you actually read the history of 1917, you will realize that the Bolsheviks had no idea what was going on and Lenin got extraordinarily lucky. Um, and that like, there's, there's no answer because if we had the answer, we'd have won by now. And so, you know, the, the reality is that like, we have to sort of sit in these uncomfortable spaces sometimes and in those spaces, people come together and that's what creates the answer. Um, it's not like a preordained answer somewhere that we just have to enact step-by-step, step. you know, step one, occupy a park, step two, release a list of demands, step three, victory. Like that's not going to work. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of people fully appreciate that movements don't just generate concrete outcomes. They also yeah. create new contexts. And yeah. what bound people together in Occupy was the energy and imagination and outrage of the moment. It really was mm -hmm. a mass radicalization event for the left. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realize that socialism and critiques of capitalism were not part of the popular discourse preoccupied. Oh my God, you couldn't say socialism, you know? You couldn't say capitalism. You know, it was, it was shocking to me again in like 2008 when all of a sudden like the economist is saying the C word. Like I ran a, oh God, I don't know where it is now. Um, I ran a like Google whatever search to look at the frequency of terms before 2008 and after 2008. And it was just like, oh, suddenly people are saying capitalism again. Like you could name the system as a system and naming it as a system and not just like the water we swim in is the first step towards realizing that it can end. You know, the, the famous, you know, Zizek or Jameson or probably both line about, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than imagine the end of capitalism. Well, it's not actually so difficult to imagine the end of capitalism anymore. Now our real problem is imagining what comes next. Yes, absolutely. You know, and the movement may not have been the, the sort of biblical storm <laughs> that some people had hoped for, but it, it definitely, it undeniably changed the weather. Yeah. I do want to talk about occupation a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, as someone who has participated in multiple occupations over the years, I kind of hope the next big thing does not take the shape of an outdoor <laughs> occupation. <laughs> But I mean, Kelly, we're getting old. I'm too creaky to be sleeping on floors. <laughs> I need to go home to a bed. Like the kids can occupy things if they want to. I will, but, I will show up and send them pizza. <laughs> but mama, oh, mama's old hips need to sleep in a bed. Like <laughs> I get a bad back now. <laughs> I, I, I feel you. I, you know, I, I'm not that durable <laughs> anymore, yeah. but I, I could see how occupation might be a, a natural consequence tactically of, mm -hmm. uh, the COVID housing crisis and mm -hmm. climate displacement. Yeah. But just to give people who haven't participated in urban occupations a sense of the difficulty <laughs> involved, can you say a bit about the upsides and downsides of that tactic that we saw during Occupy? 
I mean, so you are probably much more qualified to talk about this than me because I am like not really an organizer. I'm just a, a crotchety old journalist who's like <laughs> watched a lot of things. I've never planned and carried out an occupation. I've just shown up <laughs> after the fact to report on it. Um, but so, so the thing about occupying that was interesting was just like it stayed, right? Like the thing didn't go anywhere. And at the point, like, you know, when, when the first Occupy Wall Street marches were announced, they, they were like attempting to actually occupy actual Wall Street itself. And it ended up like Occupy a Park near Wall Street, right? But what it did was it, it um, gave sort of a location to come to if you were angry. Um, and that was that was a thing about you know Occupy Wall Street that that is different than a lot of occupations because a lot of occupation as a tactic are occupying the thing the place that is strategically significant. So again, when Occupy in a lot of places, most sort of successfully in Atlanta and Minneapolis, um, moved into home defenses, you were occupying the thing you wanted to safe, right? You were occupying people's homes and you would have, you know, a hundred people sleeping on somebody's lawn. So the sheriffs couldn't come and evict the family. Like that kind of thing is one real reason to do an occupation or, um, the folks that were protesting the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012, right? They marched to the police station in Sanford and they blockaded the police station in Sanford. Um, and that is a, you know, a specific targeted tactic. Like we are going to disrupt the functioning of this institution, to protest how it works. Um, so, you know, that kind of occupation tactic, I think um, it continues to have place, right? Um, we're seeing it used in a variety of um, ways and sort of blockades, similarly in terms of pipeline fights, right? Like line three that's happening right now. Um, and we're seeing it in home defense and eviction defense and deportation defense where, you know, it's, it's not quite an occupation, but it is a, an amassing of people to prevent something from happening in a targeted space. And all of these things are, are sort of dependent on a large number of people refusing to allow things to go on as normal um, and physically blocking them. If you can, like there was in Scotland a couple of months ago, there was a sort of famous, action on what was the name of the street I think it's Kenmare Street yeah Kenmare Street in Glasgow and people showed up to prevent somebody from being deported and you know some people like literally crawled underneath the the deportation van and, and held onto the wheels so they couldn't move and so you know there are all sorts of uses for that kind of tactic um that aren't like camping out in a park, right? Like Occupy ended up being, I guess, like almost less of an occupation and more of an encampment, right? And we saw some of those in the past year or two when we had homeless encampments in Philadelphia. Um, you had people sort of taking over the vacant police station in Chicago, or not Chicago, in Seattle. Um, but there are all sorts of, of ways that people will sort of take over a space, repurpose the space, or just hold the space and refuse to let the machinery um, go on, essentially. Yeah. And um, as someone who's, you know, participated uh, at the organizing level in, in a bunch of op uh, occupations at this point, some of which were successful and went well, some of which, you know, ended horribly 
right? Like when, you know, we're talking about, you know, things can break down in really ugly ways uh, over time in occupations. And that's something people should understand because as much as we can generate these spaces where we sort of create visions of what the world should look like, right? With having the library and having the free food and, you know, sort of creating these these manifestations of how we think people should live and provide for one another. Mm. Like all of that can be really powerful. And at the same time, on a long enough timeline, you start to see the reality that, well, well, we haven't really built all of the structures that we need to make this sustainable. Like this is in fact, you know, symbolic and that we haven't figured out a sanitation system that isn't reliant, you know, on this oppressive state. We don't actually necessarily have in our community, the structures to address violence that emerges such as, you know, gender violence Uh or, you know, just disputes between people. We don't always have the tools we need. And that if those things haven't simply naturally happened on their own, those kinds of conflicts and violence will be inserted by the state in order to, you know, discredit and break down our projects. So these things emerge on a long enough timeline in this sort of occupation-driven scenarios. Uh And so I definitely want people who have visions in their head of like ways that occupations can be beautiful and good to understand that like, yes, all of that's real. And also you have these very messy complications that come up. And also the fact that with an occupation driven movement, the tactic becomes the objective. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, sometimes that makes sense, right? Like some of the situations you were describing, you're trying to hold a house, you're trying to prevent an eviction. Um, You're trying to hold a, a piece of land, yeah, that is going to be destroyed. But for symbolic purposes, um, you know, right. it can get in the way of growth and kind of keep uh-huh. your momentum in a box. Right. Uh, it, right. And just provoke sort of more conflict with the police over something that like is increasing. And like, again, we, we talked about the, the, you know, the importance of the conflict with the police to the understanding that built a movement for black lives that wasn't just black people. Um, that... Nevertheless, it sort of became about these endless conflicts that just did have higher and higher stakes because the cops in America have a lot of weapons and they will just keep bringing them to you. And in some ways, I think Occupy Chicago was better off for the fact that we never got an encampment. We took around 300 arrests trying to get an encampment, but Rahm Emanuel was not having it. And looking back, I think that was a huge miscalculation on his part because if we had gotten Mm -hmm. caught up in defending the plaza we tried to take... I don't know that we would have had the presence that we did supporting the community groups and Mm -hmm. unions that were challenging him. I think we ultimately had a more powerful impact as organizers and activists in our communities than we would have because in place of the central continuous direct action of occupation, we shifted around the city like a cavalry that could be called in against Mm -hmm. austerity and in defense of public education and in support of housing takeovers. And we picked up Mm -hmm. knowledge experience and skills on those fronts of struggle. And looking back now, I think it was one of the great strategic errors of Rahm Emanuel's first term, like right up there with going to the mat with Karen Lewis and pushing the teachers into a strike. I think Rahm enhanced the political power of his opposition by refusing to allow those of us in Occupy to contain ourselves because decentralizing us created a power infusion for local movements during a really crucial time. And I think the consequences of that played out for the rest of Rahm's time in office. Yeah. Oh, Rahm. 
<laughs> right. Isn't he going to Japan or something? <laughs> That's what I've heard. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, I mean, you mentioned Karen Lewis and the teacher's strike. And like, I think there is something to be said here where like the, you know, the caucus that took over the Chicago Teachers Union also grew out of, you know, reading groups around the financial crisis. It grew out of the same kind of thing. And we're going to use the union in this case to bring, to create a space where people can come together and talk about this, like, massive crisis that we're living through because like the rest of the world is acting like we can just go back to normal and that's like not real. And so in all of these ways, like that experience laid the groundwork for so many things that are still ongoing and yeah, watching, you know, in New York, the, the camp lasted three months, including like one very exciting morning with the showdown with Michael Bloomberg, when like all of the unions sent in people and there were like thousands of people at the park, which now just like gives me like, it makes me flinch because I'm just like, everybody could have gotten COVID. Oh, right. We didn't have COVID then. Um, <laughs> we were just like packed in next to like, you know, big burly dudes in orange Layuna sweatshirts. Um, and like, yeah, and Bloomberg backed down because he didn't want to have a fight with, you know, thousands of people in Zakati. And so instead he, you know, they just went in one night, like a month and a half later um, and cleared it all out when nobody was expecting it and the weather was starting to get shit. So like the crowd was shrinking and that, you know, that too, it sort of depressed everybody um, for a while. And then in the spring you saw, you know, the beginnings of the fight for 15 um, the big marches around Trayvon Martin, um, you know, the fight against stop and frisk, like all of these things that had their roots in people who were central to Occupy um, were involved in organizing them. And so, you know, again, like I, I think, um, you know, the way we look back on like the 1950s and 1960s in the South and just call it the civil rights movement, but really it it was a sort of semi-discrete set of different things that that revolved around different tactics. So you had bus boycotts and you had sit-ins and you had whatever. And it's only with the benefit of like years of hindsight that we see that as one continuous movement. I think we're going to look back. I mean, this is, this is why I wrote my book the way I did. I think we're going to look back at this period and see this all as the beginning and the sort of you know, the struggle to create a class politics again in America, in Western Europe, in a lot of the world. I am going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news organization and the vast majority of our funding comes from readers and listeners like you. We've experienced a bit of a slowdown in donations recently which may have something to do with Facebook ramping down engagement with political content. But we are still here, delivering award-winning independent journalism. We are a union shop, and we have not laid anyone off during the pandemic. And our family and sick leave policies are the best in the industry. So if you believe in what we do, please consider stopping by truthout.org to make a donation today. So I want to talk a bit about some of the disasters we're experiencing and examine some of the lessons of Occupy amid COVID and the climate crisis. Yeah. Because I definitely want us to consider the power of movements that we are witnessing here and now, um, not all of which are good. Uh-huh. The whole characterization <laughs> of the GOP as a death cult has been realized quite literally in a wholly preventable wave of mass death that right-wing opposition to the vaccine has created. And a real cult with QAnon. 
Right. As someone who has followed the effects of climate change in recent years, I have had a lot of dystopian daydreams about what a world Mm. swirling and apocalyptic catastrophe might look like. And particularly amid the rise of global fascism and death cults have definitely been part of that imagery. Now we have millions of people in this country, as you say, invested in the cult of QAnon conspiracies and other right-wing mythology. And we are already seeing a commitment to those mythologies causing mass death. I know a lot of people have no sympathy for Republicans who have rejected the vaccine, but I'm also thinking about the children in those households, including, you know, the queer and trans children whose lives are hard enough in those environments and about disabled people who are stuck in the care of some of these anti vaxxers so we're talking about a cultish movement and the service workers who have to deal with them when they come in without a mask on and you know like there there are there are what and also like look my mother won't get vaccinated here's me coming out on your podcast um what do i do with that as me what do i do with that and the the hard and awful lesson that i think a lot of us have learned in the last 10 years is that we are the last people who can organize our parents that yeah my mother takes the opinion of strangers more seriously than she does mine uh and it is such a horrifying like, challenge just it just yeah because you know i'm always going to be her mouthy bratty kid and so no matter what i say no matter how many you know sort of sources of expertise i can draw on and i've got plenty because i'm a journalist that means i have a lot of resources on that front um she's not gonna listen because i'm her bratty kid and you know instead of being told to drink poison Kool-Aid, these people have been told to breathe air that carries a deadly virus and to not take a vaccine that could prevent that virus from killing them. And the death toll from that cultish collective action is going to exceed any mass death event associated with any cult that has ever existed. Mm. So in this sort of situation of collapse and decline that we're living in, yeah, I, I don't think the characterization of like apocalyptic death cult is as hyperbolic anymore. So yeah, and and I think um, oh, it's really interesting, right? Because like the apocalyptic nature is is the important part, and it on some level feels like a massive case of denial, right? That like you just cannot fathom the horror of this thing, and look like I can't either. I thought, oh my God, this summer I'm going to get vaccinated. I'm going to have like a life again. It's going to be so exciting. I've spent so much of this summer depressed, burned out, just trying to recover. Um, I get how hard this is to fathom just the way that climate change is incredibly hard to fathom. And so people's reaction to that is like a sort of understandable, can't possibly be happening, not real. Well, you know, we have so many points of of escape from processing some of the things that we need to process. You know, if if, if we look at this phenomenon, right, with the sort of cult of QAnon, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. happening in a context where there's a splintering of reality that has caused people to enact this unnecessary spectacle of death with, with an astounding level of commitment. But I really hope people are processing this in terms of the gravity of our situation narratively in a world where algorithms are splintering people into like-minded pockets of news Mm -hmm. and opinion and the political siloing of people with shared interests is on the rise globally. 
due to the way we consume information. And what's happening to right-wingers who have rejected the vaccine is obviously an extreme manifestation, but it's also part of a larger fracturing process that affects Mm -hmm. us all. And I don't think it's remotely coincidental that algorithms are positioning us to lead increasingly siloed political lives because I think power Mm -hmm. players in the tech world see the long-term value of having a working class that's too ideologically divided to act in its own defense in an increasingly chaotic world because they don't want us to come to view capitalism the way many of us view the anti-vaccine crowd right now, but we have to because that's the reality. Capitalism is also a deaf cult. Like the difference is the Republicans who are dying are all enacting this from a place of belief. And those of us living under capitalism are enacting it from a spectrum of places, right? Like belief, immediate necessity, fear of the alternative, fear of being punished if we don't cooperate. Mm -hmm. So it would be more comparable to some people refusing the vaccine and a lot of people just being denied the vaccine because authority and capital say so. And if we zoom out, that's what's actually happening in the world. That's capitalism. So the challenge is uniting people and understanding that reality so that we can take the kind of action that's going to be necessary at a global level to address the disasters ahead and the disasters of capitalism that are unfolding now. And one problem that we have always had, even across its various factions of extremity, the right is much better at uniting when it's time to fight liberals and leftists and widespread solidarity is not our strong suit. So in a moment when we need people who are splintering off into silos at an accelerated rate to be able to unify and to really see some of the same things at the same time, I do think there's a lot to learn from Occupy and how the imagery of the tent led so many people to project their hopes and dreams onto the same floating signifier. And would demands have been helpful? I I think probably. And yet (laughs) there is something to be said for being able to draw people together at all in these times in the absence of affinity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 is a question, right? That like, if, if you put out demands based on the most sort of politically advanced people in the room, immediately you would have turned off everybody who just voted for Obama and still thought he was like, maybe going to do something good. Um, and you definitely would have turned off like the Ron Paul people, which, you know, maybe you needed to, but like it, it really did require. And, and I think does require like, again, like what would be my demands tomorrow? If somebody was like, what are your demands? I'm like, I Somebody asked me to write an article recently that was kind of like, oh, we want something that's like more radical than like the, you know, the discourse that's out there or the, you know, the sort of policy discussion that's out there, but like not like overthrow the capitalist mode of production. And I was like, well, I got nothing in between there. (laughs) Like, I mean, which is like, it's sort of a good thing, right? People are talking about shorter working weeks. People are talking about universal basic income. Like there are bills being proposed for these things. There are trials happening in, you know, in Wales and in Scotland and in Spain. Like these, these things are moving. So what, what do you want me to say that isn't like, that's in between universal basic income and overthrow the capitalist mode of production? You know, like totally, I, I get and nothing like ca- overthrow the capitalist mode of production. That's what I got for you. Sorry. Well, you know, something, <laughs> same, same all you know? day. And um, <laughs> I also think though that like, that something has changed in, in, in a sort of strategically useful way. Uh, you know, like Occupy, of course, we never had the cohesion to generate demands. And I'm not saying that would be different today, that we'd be able to produce some kind of document and say, these are our demands. Look at DSA. <laughs> like, Sorry, DSA. Like, Love you. Like, I, I don't see us doing that. But what I do think we have the potential to do in a moment that has not yet been born um, 
is more effectively sort of aligned behind big ideas that are already mm-hmm. sort of hanging in yeah. the air because yeah. there are some powerful radical demands out there right now that have mm-hmm. momentum in yeah. some cases a kind of momentum we haven't seen in decades if ever uh free yeah. health care student loan forgiveness defunding the police in favor of life-giving services making yeah. covid relief programs permanent um yeah. like you said the line three struggle is unfolding right now while people are hearing about the ipcc climate report and seeing disasters like Hurricane Ida unfold. And we have millions of people newly experiencing disability due to COVID Mm -hmm. as we witness the escalating disposal of disabled people amid climate change. So I'm not saying there weren't powerful movements happening during Occupy, because obviously there were, but we are living in an unprecedented moment in a lot of ways. Yeah. And while, you know, whiteness is still very much a problem, you know, we definitely have a lot more white people with an anti-racist analysis than mm-hmm. we did 10 years ago. Yeah. So I think amid the climate struggle, we have a potential for global solidarity in the coming decades that, you know, yep. for one thing, just absolutely must be realized. It's not really optional. Yeah. But I think those things are possible. And I don't mm-hmm. think that any of that happens just magically because no, we get a lot of people in the streets or because conditions are deteriorating or because but, Bernie Sanders ran for president. <laughs> but what do you think is possible now that may not have been possible 10 years ago? What does our yeah. mass movement potential uh, look like in the face of I what mean, we're up against? This is what it's all about, right? It's we organize to win tomorrow, what we can't win today. Um, I think and I, you know, I, I, I made a sort of sarcastic comment about DSA, so I'll be like more serious about that, which is like, right, there are thousands of people in America who are now in a socialist organization. That was like, that was unthinkable when I was in college. Absolutely. I took a class on Marx and like most of the people in it were like, ha ha, Marx, got to do this for my political science, you know, degree, but like, lol. Um, and... I think to look at that and to look at like, and to take seriously the struggle of, you know, thousands of people in a socialist organization to agree on a platform. This is exactly what I mean about like making demands is actually really hard. It's easy to have like reactive demands, right? Like Cory Bush camping out to keep the eviction moratorium going. Yes. Great. We need that. That's an immediate thing that we can win. And in winning that you win the space to talk about like, yeah, why should people be evicted? You know, when you see like the people on Twitter who are just like, oh my God, if we halt evictions now, then we'll have to halt evictions forever. And it's like, yes, correct. That's what (laughs) we want. That is actually the demand. Um, And those, those immediate moments make the space for the bigger thing. Right. So defund the police, which is a demand that, you know, has come from abolitionist organizers that have been doing that for decades, um, takes wing sort of during a moment of, of mass protest when people can see exactly how awful policing is and that what its consequences are. And it becomes more possible to talk about, even though I'm pretty sure like almost every city that voted to even like marginally defund the police has, has sort of backtracked in the last year now that no police stations are on fire. Um, the way that all of this space is sort of continually created and, um, you know, so I've, I'm in England and I've spent the summer in England the last three years and, you know, here sort of like the U.S. people, a lot of people in the left who came out of the student movement and about out of Occupy over here, then went into electoral politics, into the Labour Party, into supporting Jeremy Corbyn's um, run for and then period as Labour leader and two elections where he could have ended up the prime minister and didn't. And now that's over. The Labour Party has been retaken by the right wing um, of the Labour Party. And it 
is everybody's sort of struggling to figure out like what next, what do we do next? And in the midst of that comes this, you know, this summer, the police or the police, a policeman, um, he was off duty when he did this apparently killed a young woman who was walking home, uh, home from the tube. And that sparked a massive protest movement that again, brought together groups who had been organizing around violence against women and around police violence, um, around racism against black people against Roma traveler people. Um, all of this sort of comes together in this big movement that actually makes, again, a lot of people on the left who hadn't been thinking about the police that much suddenly realize that this is central to our struggle and it always has been. And so in those spaces, you create possibility that wasn't there before. And that is created, you know, that is, is sort of brought into those spaces by people who've been doing the work already. Um, as you mentioned, Miriam early on, right? Like the people who are like ready with the ideas and with the, um, and not just ready with the ideas and like, here, I would like to sell you my socialist newspaper, but ready with the <laughs> ideas to actually like welcome people in and then say, okay, what are your ideas? And to actually enfold people into movement, because again, it, it doesn't come from us all having the right ideas. It comes from being forged in struggle. By it, I mean, you know, a political line, victory, success, a movement, an organization, any number of those things. I also think organizers have done a tremendous job over the last decade creating online resources, mm -hmm. podcasts. <laughs> toolkits yeah. and zines and books that can help educate new waves of organizers if mm -hmm. people are open to political education and learning yeah. from previous seasons and traditions. Those opportunities exist on an unprecedented scale. So yeah. that could be a game changer too. And on that subject, I will include some links to some of my favorite webinars and trainings and uh -huh. also some workshops that I plan to sign up for in the show notes of this episode on our website yeah. for people who want to avail themselves of those opportunities, which we all should. Uh, please do not wait for a moment of mass protest to learn as much as you can about how to organize, how to resolve conflict, how to extend care. Oh, resolving conflict. Right? Yeah. Because no, I, to I, I, yeah, go ahead. Because yeah, just saying like to, to really make transformations, we are going to need a mass mobilization of, of knowledge, you know, in yeah. the streets. Yeah. And of care. And I think, you know, not to sort of continue to beat this drum until I die of it, but I'm going to continue to beat this drum until I die of it. Um, this is something that we learned that I mentioned the comfort station in the kitchens and things that occupy. Um, this is something that was really present in the last year's protests after George Floyd was killed, right? Where you saw people handing out masks, handing out hand sanitizer, handing out water and food. And just like the, the sign that said, care not cops was so, it was everywhere, right? And I think this is something that it, bleeds into our politics in all sorts of useful and important ways. And it, it, um, a lot of this analysis comes from disability rights organizers and feminist organizers who have taught us that, right. That needing care is something we, we all need care and we, none of us get enough of it under capitalism and COVID has really, really brought that home for us. Right. For, you know, if you're somebody like me who was living, alone or with flatmates was single in a way that is, you know, sort of legible to capitalism as single um, and doesn't have the support of like biological family. You can feel like you're doing fine 
uh, most of the time, right? When you're not on lockdown. And then suddenly you get locked down and there's a deadly virus and you're going, what happens to me if I get sick? And thinking about that in a real way um, actually does and should change the priorities of our movements. Absolutely. And this is something I I talk about in in that book I've been working on, which is that the pandemic really has, I think, ushered in, um, you know, a a sort of narrative shift in motion that that has to continue. And it's it's sort of the narrative shift of our time, which Mm -hmm. is living in this era of catastrophe, Um, you know, people aren't going to suddenly rise up against, you know, the death makers because we spit a lot of facts at them about climate change or inequality. Uh, There has to be, we know that for movements to win, sort of the revolutionary story or the radical story has to defeat the dominant narrative. And the the radical story to me is a story about people saving each other mm-hmm. and people who will be saving each other for years. And that's, yeah. a, and that's, you know, a story that changes in shape across communities and across borders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, depending on whether we're talking about saving people from state violence or saving each other from floodwaters, yeah. but the consistency of like, you know, bringing each other food, prioritizing each other's survival, prioritizing each other's collective well-being more than we, you know, put any kind of value on the system and its norms and its order. And that is really the story that that has the power and the potential to save us. And so that is what gives me hope, especially in this moment. Uh, is that I believe that story is is very alive. And I think we saw really incredible manifestations of it in the last year. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to, to bring it back to Occupy, right. I'm thinking about Occupy Sandy, because again, we're thinking we're, we're watching and waiting for news out of new Orleans after hurricane Ida, um, you know, in 2012, when, when hurricane Sandy hits New York and New Jersey, who steps in when, again, the, the billionaire mayor didn't care who died and power was out in high-rise housing projects all over the city, trains weren't running, just, you know, massive crisis everywhere. Um, it was Occupy organizers who stepped in to provide mutual aid, to provide health care, right? It was the nurses union who was going door to door, knocking on people's doors to make sure they were okay and bring them what they needed. And that kind of moment, and it was a challenge, right? Because like the same thing you were saying earlier about occupations being that you can get to a point where you think that we have, we have replaced the existing society. And then you realize like, oh no, we are not ready for this because all of the people who are doing all this volunteering, they also have day jobs and they also have <laughs> responsibilities and we actually can't do everything. And there's actually a reason why, you know, things are set up on a social level where these are people's jobs. Like this is because it's hard work that, that needs to be supported and, and rewarded in, and I mean, rewarded is probably the wrong word, but like supported and funded and backed and institutionalized in that way. Um, you know, I remember getting really mad when some some Occupy Sandy folks started tweeting hashtag we got this. And I was like, we don't got this. We absolutely do not got this. This is really, really bad. And it's going to be really bad for years. And it needs more than what a few hundred people can do as volunteers. And that's that's okay. That doesn't mean we've failed. That means that what we're fighting for has to be big enough to take care of everyone. 
I'm wondering, looking back at Occupy, what, what makes you feel grateful or hopeful? Oh my goodness. I mean, so many things. I think um, Occupy breathed so much life into the labor movement, which is my sort of day-to-day bread and butter. Um, it, you know, it brought us the groundwork for the fight for 15. It, you know, helped radicalize these nurses unions, which have been leading the charge. Um, it provided support and interest in the teacher strikes, which have again been leading and strengthening the movement. Um, it reminded people that the workplace is also a site of struggle because it is a site of class struggle. Um, And I just think that there's, again, I, I, you know, it it always feels too soon. It's been 10 years since, uh, since the beginning of Occupy and it still feels too soon to evaluate. Um, Maybe that means I should have been a historian instead of a journalist. But I, I think, you know, part of our aversion to the, the think pieces, as we started out joking about, right, is that in the internet media culture in particular, which is, you know, it's not that newspapers weren't ever, you know, newspapers used to come out twice a day. Um, it's not that like a short-term news culture is new, but there's a particular way that the internet incentivizes the hot take and having the fastest take and having the quickest reaction and having, you know, the snappiest sort of most controversial, whatever. And I, you know, I want to challenge that in a lot of ways. And one of them is just to be hesitant to make conclusions and to say, like, there are a lot of things that this thing did that were important. And there are a lot of things that the more we go on, the more we see the connections, right, between the comfort station at Occupy and the care not cops, people with little red wagons handing out bags of hand sanitizer and masks um, and any number of these other things. And yeah, I think right now, though, in this moment where like these big sort of exciting electoral campaigns on the, you know, left-ish have failed, is that I'm I'm glad that there's a recent legacy of non-electoral politics. And like, frankly, without that non-electoral politics, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders don't get to where they got to. But there is there's there are things to point to to say like, okay, yeah, that it's not just about the election. There are things that we can do right now about the problems, whether they be the really big, scary problems like climate change and COVID or the really immediate necessary problem like your neighbor is about to get evicted. Yes, um, uh, all of that, and tremendously grateful for the relationships I built during Occupy. I met some of my dearest friends at GAs and committee meetings and marches, and I connected with grassroots organizers in Chicago neighborhoods whose work I probably never otherwise would have engaged with or even heard about in some cases. And that was the beginning of a shift for me that led me to where I am now because, you know, mass protest has the power to change what's politically possible, as you're saying, and, you know, in the world. And also, I think what's possible for us as people. And I also appreciate knowing that large masses of people who lack political affinity can be drawn together to project all of their grievances and dreams onto the same 
signifiers and have those debates and create messy projects because that allows us to experiment and fuck with the status quo in ways that are absolutely necessary. And, you know, maybe one of those experiments will help us find the words or ideas that can paste some of our fracturing worldviews back together enough for us to fight together in a good way until we've really won So I do think we have to learn from Occupy and every other movement that wasn't everything we wanted it to be and every movement that we only think was everything we wanted it to be because we haven't read enough about it. (laughs) (laughs) I promise there is no movement that was everything we wanted it to be because it would have won. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, the the ontological movement question, right? It's like a a movement that would have every possible perfection would also have had the perfection of winning. That is the only time I will ever quote Descartes. (laughs) Yes. You know, we learn from what worked about movements that have gone by, and we need to figure out how to build the relationship skills and infrastructure we need to keep pushing left, you know, in the highly energetic moments and the everyday. Yeah. And um, Sarah, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. It is always amazing talking to you. Thank you. This is so much fun. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember... Our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.